0: So we're really looking to change what democracy looks like in Pennsylvania and not just for the long term, but to build power while doing so so that we can shift the balance of how things are happening and make government a little bit more accountable to the communities that they actually represent.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side this show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight in this episode i spoke with Shalowa Oganmethan who serves as executive director of Pennsylvania Voice the C3 civic engagement table in Pennsylvania Shalowa trained as an engineer at temple university has a lot of political experience as a field consultant working around the country and as a political operative in pennsylvania pennsylvania voice brings together over 40 progressive organizations in pennsylvania and is part of the state voices network nationally we spoke about why she moved into politics what's going on in pennsylvania including the upcoming redistricting and what pennsylvania voice is working on so after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Shalwa Ogenmethan of Pennsylvania Voice. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G R A P H I C A C Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Shalwa, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Of
0: course. My name is Shalua Ogan methan I am the executive director at Pennsylvania Voice. I've been here for a few months now. Very excited to have joined the team. I um, was originally born in Nigeria. I moved uh, to PG County and grew up in Maryland. Uh, came to Philadelphia in about 2007 and have been here since, so minus a few years that I spent traveling around the country, working on different types of campaigns, voter registration projects, candidate campaigns, ballot initiatives, and really picking up and learning some muscle memory around how we run elections, how we talk to people, and how we communicate with folks in civic engagement environments.
1: How old were you when you came over? Like two. Silver Spring, I'm in D.C., so I kind of know the area, what was growing up in this area like for you.
0: This is something I realized as an adult that I didn't really appreciate as much when I was growing up in PG County, but I remember having Black teachers until I got to high school, I had all black teachers. I remember, you know, going to the doctor and having a black doctor, a black dentist, um, and really just being around and being surrounded by like successful people from all different walks of life, like an incredibly diverse environment and the limitations that I felt when I was working um, in the schools in Philadelphia, I really didn't feel as a student like growing up in PG County, which is a big part of how I ended up doing the work that I do now, because just the overall environment that I was in was so different. I was actually talking to one of my friends last night who also grew up in PG County and talking about so many of the similarities between Philadelphia and PG County in terms of the systems you know, within the system itself, I went, I was in a magnet program, and then I went to a science and technology high school. And so there was just a lot of things I don't think that I realized in how I was taken out of um, regular classes and separated from other students in a way that like ensured my success at the expense of others.
1: Was that Blair?
0: Eleanor Roosevelt.
1: Eleanor Roosevelt, all right. My daughter went to Woodrow Wilson in the district, one of the not many high schools in the country that are very diverse. And um, you know, I think that's a really important experience for people to have growing up to not just be exposed to one culture.
0: And it's interesting because I so I was studying engineering, my background, you know, I went to science and tech. I always wanted to be like in science. Um and I was interviewing for a job a few years after I graduated. I spent a lot of time like mentoring students in robotics and working on robotics platforms and I was interviewing for a job and it was a job that was working in PG County schools with robotics teams and you know they were talking to me about like the school that I went to they're like yeah owner Roosevelt High School has like a robotics team and it was the first time that I had ever found out that owner Roosevelt High School had a robotics team and they mentioned like who the teacher was that uh is like the coach of the robotics team and it was a teacher that so when I remember back to high school and the first time that I remember feeling like something was wrong or feeling like somebody was looking at me differently, that they were looking at other students. It was actually like the same teacher. They had a critique of all the years that he had come to like the robotics platform, like over 10 years. He had never brought a student of color. All the students on the robotics team were white. And he was a white teacher. All the students on the robotics team was white. And it was it was something that other people had noticed to the point where, like, how is your school so diverse? Like you have this school full of all of these talented and extraordinary like students, but you continuously invest in the white students that you decided you wanted to invest in. And it was just I think realizing that, like, as an adult was another just like, oh, OK, well, there's a lot of experience that I actually had that I just didn't know how to put my finger on growing up in PG County that are very, very similar to like the experience a lot of the students have here in Philly, at least that I, you know, I was at Martin Luther King High School for a while. I was at Germantown when it closed. I was at Overbrook High School. Um, and it's just so many various, it's some, so many of those same experiences where we're investing in particular students at the expense of others.
1: Clearly a teacher like that should be recruiting to make sure that they have the strongest team that they can possibly have, right? My only exposure to robotics is watching BattleBots. Did you ever watch that?
0: I did. I mm-hmm. love BattleBots. <laughs> you would be very interested in some of the robotics programs that are happening. Like students are basically creating those and um, going through like different challenges to like win prizes. It's really cool.
1: Yeah, you went off to Temple, right? Yes. Wow, well, was Temple for you.
0: Temple was I went to Temple Engineering. (laughs) Um, And so I think that I when I was in school, I was very much focused on learning. You know, there was a lot of different experiences like you have while you're there. I think that I my experience at Temple like really led in so many different ways to the experiences that like created the job that I do now and kind of the ideology that I believe in now. But Temple Engineering was hard, (laughs) and there were not a lot of uh, Black students, and there was not a lot of investment in the Black students at the time while I was there. Um, And it's something that, like, you know, was something that we talked about often as students. I was a big part of NSBE, the National Society of Black Engineers, and we had, like, a very, very good support group of folks together, but also faced a lot of challenges of, like, being Black students and explicitly, like, saying we were doing what we were doing and not necessarily feeling like we had the same support as some of the other clubs on campus but it was overall, it was like an extraordinary experience. I think that so much of what I understand about the world today, I learned at Temple, some in great ways, some in like more challenging ways. Overall, like I think that Temple's just diversity on campus, like the culture that was created there is just something extraordinary that I hope everyone can experience at some point.
1: I mean, I majored in computer science as an undergraduate, but I took a lot of liberal arts courses also, a lot of history, things like that. Do you feel like the engineering background has been helpful for you, even in politics, even though you didn't go down that road to become a professional engineer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah. Why, how?
0: As an engineer, you're taught um, how to find solutions to problems. (laughs) I have a very black and white way of thinking sometimes that can be a challenge. Uh, but I'm always thinking through things so like how do I find the solution to this like there is a solution to everything and it's just about like figuring out what the factors and the variables that are actually at play um but then also you know engineering is science and the scientific method of practicing something coming to a hypothesis trying it out and then like does that work does that not work and allowing that failure sometimes right like sometimes you have to try something iterate it and you realize that that's not the path but now you're closer to getting to your overall goal and you know one way that you're not going to get there and so i think that that kind of learning and that process of learning is something that you really have to learn as an engineer because What happens when you aren't doing what you need to do as an engineer can be dangerous to so many people. And so I think I'm always thinking about that and always thinking through like what could happen potentially and the different um, variables that are at play in any situation. When we're talking about power, um, when we're talking about like redistricting, when we're talking about civic engagement, everything to me is like, what are the variables at play? How did we get here? Let's figure that out, break it down into pieces, and then let's put it back together.
1: I know you're have a political job and a series of political jobs, but I can also hear in how you talk about the world that you're a politicized person, which I mean, is a a very good thing. What are the roots of that? Where do you think you first started to think about the world through a lens of politics?
0: I was standing inside of Martha Washington Middle School. Um, It was during the time that I was a student at Temple. I was working on a robotics platform, uh, mentoring some middle schools in the city. Um, And I was working with a group of, I wanna say sixth to eighth graders and, you know, Best Robotics is like really cool. They give you raw materials. So like they give you wood. They give you like uh, sheet metal. You just get surveys. So you're working with students. So like you actually use like saws and stuff to cut things up, to put them together. And so we had put the base of the robot together. I had a team of people working on coding. And so I'm working with a team of students like on the wheels of the base so we could actually make sure that it moves. And I asked them what the diameter of the wheels need to be. And none of the students in the room understood what a diameter was. And for me, like growing up in PG County coming from, you know, a migrant background, like everything that I grew up with and everything I understood about the world at that point was you work really hard and your input, what you put in, is directly related to what you get out. And for me in that moment, it was just like, wait, what? Like this has nothing to do with them. (laughs) Like actually, if I'm standing inside of this room and all of these students are saying to me they don't know something, then the problem isn't the students. The problem is how did they get in this room? And not all of them not understand this concept and how, like, who was in charge of that decision? And, like, how do we make sure that those decisions are changing so that we can actually change the experience of these students? And so that's the moment. Whenever I think back to it, I tell this story often, like, that's the moment that I was just like, something is not right. And I didn't know what wasn't right, but I knew that it had nothing to do. And at no point was it those students' fault. And, you know, that led me to when I graduated from college, I worked for the school district for a little while. I mentioned earlier that I was at a couple of schools. I worked for a grant. Working at the school district actually, like, helped me better understand, like, how we got there. I just felt like there were so many decisions that were being made by adults that affected students. The decision wasn't being made from the lens of how do we make sure these students can be successful? And so just better understanding how we as people contribute and how our decisions kind of make systems and make institutions and are the definition of the institutions really, for me, changed how I thought about the world.
1: I get that. Anyone in middle school should know what diameter is and they should have been taught that. I think back to when I was in school, though, there were some kids who had learned what the diameter was and some kids who did not. And sometimes that was their fault right because they weren't doing their work i think it's a very tricky thing because you can have a horrible teaching environment and people cannot do the learning that they should be doing and then sometimes you could have a pretty good environment and some of the kids are not coming along for whatever reason maybe it's what's happening at home or or lots of other things how do we think about that politically that, that that's a very important problem and it fills the policy space, right? How do we pull everybody up when everyone should get good experiences in learning, but not everybody does.
0: And I I think that what you just said about like, how do we do it when everyone should get that experience? Right. So, like, focusing on our goal is to make sure that everyone is able to get the experience of learning so that when they, you know, let's say we're talking about diameters in middle school. So, when they leave middle school, that they understand diameter. So, to me, I think that I would reframe the question. Right. Like, I transparently, I'm never going to believe anything is a child's fault. (laughs) Like, I think that children are children and, like, we should see them as such. And I think that it is our role as adults and people who have decision making power to influence children. And so like, how did this child show up in this way? And why are they showing up in this way? For me is a better question than, what do we do when like, you know, one child is like acting up in a classroom because it's not a singular incident because we see this happening in so many different places and avenues. It's nuanced, like you said. Right. Sometimes it's because something is happening at home. Sometimes it's because the way that they're showing up inside of that class they did, you know, sometimes a child feels shame. They don't know something and then they act out so they don't have to answer a question. Right. But like what I do know is I a couple of years ago when I first started organizing in Philly, one of the things we were working on was a suspension ban for Earliest learners, first and second graders. Yeah, first and second grade suspension ban. We had principals and teachers and administrators like advocating that like they should be able to suspend first and second graders, and it's like okay, well let's let's talk about this, right? Let's break this out a little bit further. Eighty four percent of the suspensions at that time were for nonviolent offenses. So, like, we're talking about suspending first graders for speaking out of turn. They're in the first grade. We should have the expectations of children to be children, and we should set up our systems and our teachers to be successful. Because a teacher doesn't, they don't wake up in the morning, most teachers, I should not say all teachers, but, like, we're going to assume that we're talking about a teacher who is teaching because they care about students and what they're doing. They didn't wake up that morning, like, I want to push this child out of the classroom. What they may have woke up that morning is a little stress from their life because we're all people. And they got into that classroom. A, A lot of students were excited about learning a concept. One child wasn't, you know, like as excited and for some reason was showing out in a way. And if they had a second person in that classroom to be able to talk to that child and work with that, the way that that teacher can handle that situation is different. But right now the only option that teacher has is punitive or to take away classroom time. So it's like, how do we actually structure our classrooms for success instead of blaming children for our poor planning.
1: Well, I've seen though teachers struggle and end up giving 65% of their attention to the two kids who do misbehave. And that is to the detriment of the majority of the kids, regardless of background. So it is not easy to be a teacher and it's not easy to deal with those kids who are not kind of on the path that you were, which was, putting in the work and and uh, making the effort, right?
0: But I think those students are making the effort. Those students have a different need and the classroom is not structured to meet the need of that student. And let's structure classrooms to meet that need. And I don't, like, you know, a teacher should have someone else, especially we're talking about younger students, right? If I couldn't handle 35 year olds, right? There's no training in the world that can get me <laughs> to be able to handle 35 year olds.
1: And certainly suspending from school, a first or second grader seems outlandishly bad, you know, in, in all except for some violent cases or yeah. something.
0: And the suspensions that are happening aren't violent cases, right? It's like we say and we set the expectation that, oh, this kindergarten is getting expended because they punched another kid in the face. But the data show that that's not actually even true.
1: Yeah. I want to ask you about that a little bit because how you think about this and how you articulate it. Tells me a lot about you and about how you think politically. When you come back to me and say, I want to reframe that question, there's a learned or innate assertiveness there that's really admirable. You know, like it's the kind of thing that leads you to being the executive director of an organization in a keystone state such as you're in. So, walk me through a little bit more your career. You come out of Temple, what's next for you?
0: I came out of Temple, and while I was at Temple, I started working for a political consulting firm based out of D.C. um, that does a lot of consulting on the Democratic side, field campaigns, digital campaigns. They do some type of mail sometimes, um, but a big consulting firm. And so when I graduated from college, I worked full time for the school district of Philadelphia, I was working, you know, for the Gear UP grant. Specifically, I was working with three high schools. I named them earlier, Germantown High School, until it closed down during the time the district was going through a lot of challenges, again, because of <laughs> adults' decisions. Eventually, I got really frustrated with the bureaucracy that I kind of felt was between me and being able to work with my students. Because I was grant-funded, you know, there were specific students I was supposed to work with. What I was tasked with was helping them get into college. And so if a student came to me and said, I actually want to, um, you know, be a truck driver and I want to get my CDL license. This is a real situation that happened. I wasn't supposed to work with that student. And it's like, I, you know, at a certain point, like we were expected to put in increments of our time and they wanted a 15 minute account of what we were doing with our time every day so that they can make sure that we weren't working with the students that they didn't see as the students that they wanted to invest in. And so just being in that position and being around a school of, let's say, 800 kids already being told that I can only work with like 200 of them because they're in a grade, but then being told that I'm not allowed to work with any of them that don't want to go to college that i have to work with the only the ones that want to go to college and invest more in them even though they have already investment so okay great we have a school field trip and you know i'm taking kids to westchester and i can only take the kids who want to go to college right and it's like that that just compounds kind of backwards compounds compounds. exactly um and so for me it got really frustrating and i ended up uh leaving because i asked for a printer you know, this is around the time the school lost a lot of support, like school district lost supports. A lot of the grants were um, ending. And so I was in a position where I actually um, had a computer lab full of computers as my office. And so students would come in and out so they can do like their applications, their resumes. But I didn't have a printer inside of my office classroom computer room and so i if we printed something it went down to the front office which is on a different floor so i'd have to write a student in the past they go down a flight of stairs go to the other side of the office to pick up whatever they printed and then come back upstairs and so i asked for a printer so that we didn't have to do that and so we could just have something that everyone printed inside of the classroom they could just email it to me i could print it from my computer cool and i was told no because the grant couldn't purchase more computers because so many computers and like computer equipment had been lost. And I was like, so again, I can't do my job and help these students because y'all lost like a bunch of equipment. Like what does that have to do with my students and me printing and them going- Does that
1: mean lost or does that mean stolen?
0: Some combination of lost and stolen but neither was by any of my students. (laughs) You know, and so being in that position and feeling so powerless like that, I actually um, ended up leaving the district and I put all of my stuff in storage um, in Mount Airy. And I spent three years traveling around the country working for the political consulting firm that I mentioned earlier. And so I was, you know, I did probably somewhere between seven to nine election days a year. And like election day not necessarily being an election, but sometimes it's a ballot initiative. Sometimes it's a voter registration program. But spent most of the year working on those type of electoral and political campaigns in various places throughout the country. A lot of the battleground states that we know of today. And I would go somewhere and I'd be there for five months, maybe. Right. I think that's probably the longest five to six months on the longest side. Sometimes it would be as little as two weeks. And I would build relationships. You know, we would recruit a team of people because, um, you know, it was really important to put money back into the community. You know, that was that, that has always been one of the things that was important to the uh, firm that I worked with. And we would put all of these resources in the community. We would develop these relationships. We would talk to people about power. We would talk to people about how important it was to engage. Uh, but we went to those doors and we had told people what was important, right? And we went to those doors and we had those conversations with folks based on what it was that like people wanted us to say. And I started getting a little frustrated because sometimes the candidates that I was working for, the things that I was asking to do, didn't align with like my internal values. So I think that was a pain point. And then the other pain point was, you know, I, I think I ran some very large programs, like the Largest program, or I guess one of the more notable ways to talk about it. In 2014, I did a voter registration program that registered 24,000 people in six weeks. And so, like you're hiring a lot of people, you're running a lot of shifts, you're doing a lot, like both in organizers, supervisors, actual like canvassers. It's a very large operation. Then you leave. By two days after election day, like I wasn't there anymore. Day after election day, you send everybody to the office, clean it out. And then you're gone because you're tired. You want to go home. And then those people who had had that engagement, engagement, who became excited, who were having those conversations, what are they going to do? And so um, I got really excited about this model that I saw some folks I'm starting to do folks so like actually one of the uh, people that I've always had so much respect for was new Georgia project and the way that they've um, done their work. And so I saw organizations like that, that were actually on the ground, like all year doing year long civic engagement work. And this is, you know, like 2013, 2014, when they first, you know, actually, I think probably started before that. That's when I first got introduced to like new Georgia project. They had these big goals, like we're going to register a hundred thousand people and our goals and our, and what we're doing is about how we build power for our, our communities, And I got really excited about that. And I wanted to do something that I felt was more transformative in that way. And something that was less based on candidates and people and much more based on actual policies and the vision that we share together and the way that we want to see the world really work. And so I came back to Pennsylvania in 2016. Um, For the 2016 election cycle, um, and I joined and I was a shared resource between One Pennsylvania and Make the Road Pennsylvania, two base voting organizations that do issue work stemming from economic justice, housing, immigration work. They had planned to run like uh, some level of field programs, um, you know, knocking on doors, talking to people in the 2016 election. And so Joining on, I was able to like work with folks to scale up their programs a little bit, add some more structure to their programs for 2016. And then after that, I was offered a position and really excited to stay on at One Pennsylvania and really kind of like curse out this idea a little bit more that I was starting to frame in my mind around the connections between electoral politics, issue organizing, base building, and how all of that together can really affect and create change. I think another thing that I kind of just learned from, especially that program in North Carolina, is that like sometimes bigger is not better, <laughs> right? Sometimes instead of one, you know, organization trying to register 24,000 people in six weeks, what happens when like you have 20 organizations all taking a smaller piece of that pie? You can do work with a little bit more integrity. I was really excited about like building out that model. I joined 1PA, you know, started the Fair Work Week campaign in Philadelphia with workers and advocates. Uh, which is one of the things I'm the most proud of because it was, the strongest Fair Work Week legislation in the country at the time. I haven't been paying attention to anything's passed since then, but I'm going to continue to say it's the strongest in the country. And it was also one of the most significant labor laws, if not the most significant, that has passed in recent like history in the city of Philadelphia as well. But still, through all of that, what I'm the most proud of is if you talk to any of the workers who led that campaign and who were on the front lines of that campaign, the folks who were in those um, press conferences, the folks who were really putting their jobs in the line, they know exactly what's in that bill because they made the decisions. Every single time that I was walking into a room and saying, hey, this is the piece of legislation that we're unwilling to like compromise on or this is really important, that information was coming from workers who were actually living the life and had the expertise of what this bill needed to look like because they're the ones experiencing the harm in real time. Um, and every time that there was, you know, a lobbyist on the other side saying, hey, you know, these workers, we can't give them two week schedule because of X, Y, and Z. I could actually tell them why what they were saying was incorrect because I had done so much work and the workers had spent so much time making sure I understood so I could go in that space and actually like represent their interests. And so that model of just making sure that you are accountable to who it is that you're actually doing work for is just something that has developed. And I see people in several places throughout the country, but here in Pennsylvania that we're really trying to build. And so when One Pennsylvania then turned around and put out an endorsement in the like municipal races, we got so many people that actually filled out that endorsement. And the folks that didn't like still responded to us and let us know why. And to me, that was really because of the power that had been built through that campaign, through those workers getting a real coalition of amazing people. There were unions working on this campaign. There were like healthcare advocates working on this campaign. There's so many different lenses that something as simple as needing two weeks of mass notice of your schedule, like lends you to that. It was just it was an amazing campaign. Uh, So proud of all the work that folks did, but really taught me like. In real time, what it can mean when community members are actually the ones deciding what it is that we're pushing for in terms of legislation and have that power. Not just, hey, we want to pass this policy and like you guys come along for the ride, but they say this is the policy we need to pass and we're uncompromising because the reason we need this is actually like for our health. It's for our livelihood. It's because this is inhumane versus on the other side where people are pushing back because of profit.
1: Well, you have, in these different jobs that you've described, I think probably learned an awful lot about how people in this country are about politics. Pennsylvania is a it's a large and complex and and diverse and varied state, and uh, it has many people that that are aligned with you and many people who are wildly not. How do you see? the politics kind of broadly of the state from the position you had at one Pennsylvania and now at Pennsylvania Voice?
0: I think that there's an imbalance of power in the state of Pennsylvania right now. You know, I think that as of 2018, 89% of our state legislature was white, over 75% were men. And that's just not realistic to the demographics of the community that those legislators serve. Right now, as of 2015, the growth of communities of color in the state of Pennsylvania, specifically Black, Latinx, and Asian-American communities, the growth share was about 20%. As of 2019, that growth share was 24%. So we're seeing a 1% percentage increase in the actual population and demographic growth in the state of Pennsylvania. And that population growth is driven by black indigenous and people of color communities, but we're not seeing that reflected in our state legislature. A part of that right now is because those lines and these districts were solidified and that authority was solidified 10 years ago. Uh, But a part of that is also not that, right? Like we do have districts that right now, like if you look at the demographics, they are overwhelmingly minority. And then we have people that are representing them that are white and not representing their interests. And so, In Pennsylvania right now, the lens that I am looking through a lot of the work that we are doing is how do we rebalance that power? I shouldn't say re because it was never balanced to begin with, right? Like historically, we have seen the way that our country was founded and has continued. Like no one was ever quiet about like wanting to restrict voting rights at the forefront to white men who owned property. So white men who owned property that didn't work for other people, right? So like from the beginning, we wanted to restrict it to wealthy white men. And, you know, that has changed through legislation. We have regulated that over time, but regulating and reforming things over time has not gotten us to actual parity in terms of democracy and representation of Black, indigenous people of color communities in Pennsylvania or throughout the country. And so when I look at the state of Pennsylvania, there's a lot of different lens that you can look at it through. But for me in the communities that are continuously on the front lines of a lot of the issues that progressive powers are fighting for, and we're talking about increasing the minimum wage, and we're talking about uh, the people that are most affected by increase the minimum wage, right? Like we're talking about housing, the people that are most affected by housing issues. Like we're talking about immigration, the people that are affected by immigration the most. Like these communities are not currently represented the way that they should be in our legislature, and that's a part of the reason that we're not able to pass these policies. And not just represented in terms of oh, this is a community that has um, that is 51% black, so let's put somebody black in power there, but actual representation and accountability to the needs and the interests of those rural communities. And I'm really excited about like the once in a 10 year opportunity that we have in this moment of redistricting to actually balance some of that power and make sure that our state legislature is representative of the communities that they actually serve.
1: So one lens clearly to see is that sort of a racial lens and other questions of representation, gender, and so on. Another one is party. Party controls redistricting party controls power. And the truth is that the Republican party in Pennsylvania is been mainly dictating what goes on in the state. To what extent do you see this through a partisan lens, not just a lens that like the one you've enunciated?
0: I think that there's a lot of pieces in redistricting that have been far too partisan for far too long. <laughs> But the reality is that you're, you're correct, right? Like the powers at B in the state of Pennsylvania in the last three rounds of redistricting have been, you know, very conservative powers that have not seen the interests of Black kids and the people of color communities as important or as necessary. And in a lot of cases have seen it as communities to extract from. And so what we're walking into in this cycle is a little bit different. Because like that power structure, that power imbalance is no longer, you know, on the Republican side. Like if you look at the work that was done in 2015 by lots of allies that we have in state, like unions, a lot of votes um, to throw down, like we on the C four side. If you see a lot of the work that they did in 2015 to make sure that the Supreme Court instead in the state of Pennsylvania actually uh, was able to, like, think about things from the lens of, like, how do we make sure that we are legislating and our policies are good for the people in the state versus prioritizing profit? When we look at that work, we're walking into a redistricting cycle that's a little bit different this time. It's historic for several different reasons, right? Like, um, Leader Costa is the only representative, the first time we've had a representative that's been on the LRC, the Legislative Redistricting Commission, that actually draws our lines. We know we have a re- someone who's been there twice, which is just, like, experience. Experience coming to that table, which is incredibly important. We also, for the first time, have the first two women, right? Leader uh, Ward and Leader McClinton. And then we have the first like Black person at all. And she's a Black woman, Leader McClinton coming out of Philadelphia. Um, and I think some of her districts also ascend into Delaware County. We have a historic moment here. And we also have a little bit of a difference in power balance going into this process. And on my end, like This is not a partisan process, I think a big part of our campaign and the work that we're going to be doing this year is to make sure that we are separating redistricting from the process, because in the same way that the census is meant to count every single person in the state, redistricting is meant to then take those numbers and make sure that we have districts that are able to have people get access to power and to get representation. None of anything I just said is partisan and it should, the process shouldn't be partisan. So for our coalition and our lens, like I am a lot less interested in having conversations with folks about like the Republicans and the Democrats and more about like how do we actually prioritize racial equity? Because that's not partisan. And historically, like that's not just something that we've seen come out of one party and not prioritize. Um, I think it's something that needs to be prioritized by both parties, by the entire LRC. I'm really excited and hoping that we see some folks who are talking about racial equity and how we actually prioritize that in the process. But again, like I, I think that I don't see redistricting as partisan. I see it as equally as partisan as the census. And I think someone would be really difficult to say the census is partisan. It is structural, like to our democracy and how we create, like how things are done. And so I'm really trying to separate the partisan from redistricting in the way that we think and talk about it.
1: State legislators who control process like that think of it in partisan terms and they think of it in power terms with the Voting Rights Act and things like that. We had ways of including racial equity in that process that that have actually, because of the Supreme Court, become less useful in, in a lot of states. But what do you want to see happen? Typically, what redistrictors have done to insult minority races is pack votes into a small number of districts or crack them up into small pieces so that they don't have much power. How would you have them draw districts in a way that you think would most serve the communities that most need to be served? Mm
0: -hmm. I think the first thing that we should do is talk to people who live in the communities and not just the people who will opt into filling out, you know, a map online. I think we need to talk to the people that we don't get to talk to on a regular basis. You know, redistricting happens every 10 years. And the formal process has a tendency to start like right before you know the census data comes out in most states. But like we have ten years to do this realistically. And so uh, what I want to see is this actually have real conversations, meaningful conversations with community members about how they actually see themselves because at the end of the day, these districts represent people. They do not represent land. And so in order to be able to draw lines to give people access and representation, we need to be able to understand how people live their lives. And, you know, those, the congruency and the compactness and we added racial equity um, considerations that we think about, like when we're actually drawing lines, but that's for geography, right? Like compactness. I understand the intention behind it, but people don't live in compact districts. And essentially what we're saying when we don't prioritize racial equity before some of these other qualifications is that in order to make sure that people of color in this, like, country or in the state of Pennsylvania have representation they actually need to live in segregation and they actually need to plan around like these lines and then change every 10 years we need to talk about people and so to start the process by asking people to like define their own communities which is not going to be you know a senate district it's not going to be a house district but it's going to be this is my grocery store and like you know I would define my community including my job and like the library that my kids go to and once we understand like that micro level of like how people actually define their own communities, let's start, use that as a base and then let's take a step back and then let's understand like the other considerations. How are we prioritizing community voices and then using that as a basis to actually like come to maps that make sure that people who are seeing different parts of their communities as part of the way they see it themselves are actually reflected in our house district maps and in our senate maps and our congressional maps. But unless we start the process first by talking to people and identifying the places in the state where, okay, we know right now that 24 percent of the state is uh, black, Latinx and Asian American communities. And we know right now that only like 86, 87 percent of our state legislature represents that. So where is that gap? before new census data comes out and we can find where that map is, we can find where those gaps are and those are the particular places that we should be paying attention to at the beginning of the process. Let's make sure that we figure out how we can represent those communities and then let's start bringing in the other considerations and then let's start talking about, okay, how do we make sure this is as compact as possible? How do we make sure this is as congruent as possible? But if we don't start with the communities, we're never actually gonna be able to get to racial equity.
1: Well, I can see that you're quite passionate about the redistricting thing, and it's very important. Tell me about sort of how you see Pennsylvania Voice and its role over the next while under your leadership. What is the breadth of things that you want to be involved in? Who are the constituent groups? Tell me a little like the bigger picture stuff.
0: Yeah, so we are a partnership of over 44 organizations throughout the state, ranging in size, scope, geography, like what they care about. I always start off by saying that because so much of the work that we're doing is actually those organizations doing the work. And all of those folks are aligned in three things. Democracy requires full representation and participation. The pathway to power in the state of Pennsylvania values Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. And the actual pathway to building that power that we need is through collective liberation. You know, I mentioned this earlier, but instead of one organization saying, hey, we're doing all of this work and taking up all of this and talking to everyone, what happens if authentic organizations that are doing work in communities actually continue to do that work if you're working on an issue advocacy campaign, like that is connected to government and it's connected to redistricting. It's connected to the census. It's connected to voting. And how do we um, actually engage those Organizations that are doing that incredibly important advocacy, base building, and organizing work in the democracy process. And how do we actually build power through that lens where everyone is having a seat at the table and we're actually having real discussions about what we prioritize, what we don't prioritize, how we prioritize, and what our actual goal and agenda is. And so we work in four different program areas racial equity. I've talked about that a lot today. So it shouldn't be surprising that that comes up. It's both a commitment that we have as an organization to looking at our culture and how do we actually dismantle white supremacy like within the work that we're doing within our organization it's also a commitment that our partners have made to how they actually do their work and then it's also a programmatic foundation and then on the more heavy and program side we have a civic engagement department that does a very large integrated voter engagement program ran a census program last year that reached out to over 400,000 households to encourage them to self opt into the census Um, we have a Voting Rights and Access Department that is working on legislation. You know, Of course, we want to pass legislation, we want to stop bad legislation, but then also the county level advocacy that is necessary to actually make sure the interpretation and the implementation of those legislations are actually in favor of and continuously prioritizing the communities that we're doing work in and making access to the ballot as easy as possible systematically. And then we have our reflective democracy work, which is what housed our census, um, Keystone Counts campaign last year, and also is housing our redistricting campaign we're working with uh, our partners and a larger group of organizations throughout the state to really make sure that community voices, Black, Indigenous, and people of color community voices in the state are heard and prioritized and valued through this redistricting process. So I think that coming in, that has been the work of Pennsylvania Voice. I have no intentions of changing the work. I came here because I believe in the work. I think that I'm really coming in with that particular lens towards collective liberation and like how are we creating the world that we want to see through the way that we are actually operating our partnership, through the way that we're doing our work. And how are we actually investing in as many organizations, as many community members as possible, really stepping into their own leadership so that we're um, creating not just the opportunities for people to be able to co govern with our like state government or with our municipal government, but also making sure that people are ready and prepared because it's hard to get inside of an office and you have to have policy people around you and you have to have, you know, a chief of staff that you trust and you have to have like um, NGO leads and people that are writing and thinking and developing policies for you to actually be able to like propose or think through whether or not that's something you can prioritize that year. So we're really looking to change what democracy looks like in Pennsylvania, and not just for the long term, but to build power while doing so, so that we can shift the balance of how things are happening and make government a little bit more accountable to the communities that they actually represent.
1: It seems to me the puzzle is to pull together a coalition a progressive coalition of more than half of the people. What do you think are the biggest challenges to making that happen?
0: The biggest challenge is just, that's not necessarily how most things that we do are structured, right? Like I think that generally our society operates from a scarcity lens where like, you know, our destinies are not necessarily uh, aligned. Like, I want to make sure I'm good. I want to make sure my family is good. Then I want to make sure my friends are good. And in this lens and the lens that we're taking as a um, partnership, it's really my neighbor and me are really, our, our lives are connected in a way that we can't separate it. And really having some of those tense and hard discussions you have to have because there's so much that is invested in actually making us feel like our community's interests aren't aligned. And so I would say the most difficult way, part of keeping a coalition like ours, that is so diverse, working on so many different issues, it's a, that that is how I see power actually being shifted in the state is working through that lens and working through that way. But it just also means that as a partnership, we have to have a lot of tense conversations and we have to make sure that we're staying in alignment and keeping that overall vision because sometimes like folks have to do what's good for them. And sometimes that's not what's best for the partnership. And we have to be able to have the relationships to withstand like when things like that really happen because they're going to because we're all just people.
1: What's your own philosophy of leadership? What do you think makes a good leader of an organization like this?
0: I've been thinking about that question a lot lately. (laughs) Um,
1: It's not easy.
0: It's not. I just, I think you just have to always be open to learning new things and to being wrong. You know, I mentioned earlier that like, I think through things to the lens of like, try it out. And then like, you know, it may fail. It may work. You learn lessons, you know, always being open to feedback, I think is incredibly important. Like back to collective, I think that we are strongest when we have several people's opinions and thoughts and ideas at the table, because we can only come to the table with our own experiences. Like the only thing I can give you is my perspective. And so just understanding that, understanding that like you don't always have the answers and actually sometimes like you're wrong. And when you are, you just have to own it. And make sure that you do what you can to like rectify anything, any harm that was done and move forward. So I think that just as a, as a leader, all of us, no matter where we are as leaders, I think that it's just really important to value people as people and understand that our institutions, whether it's an organization, whether it's a community club, whether it's a family, our institutions are just people. And so if we think about the people, that's how we actually fix the institution.
1: How do you think about the people who often align on the other side of the things that you're trying to push for? They're just people. Sometimes they're wrongheaded or sometimes they're under the influence of someone we think is on the wrong track, to put it mildly. But they're fellow citizens. They come to their opinions in a variety of ways. It could be through bigotry. It could be through, um, you know, just conservative values that are different. How do you think about that other side from your lens?
0: Well, you know, my initial reaction is honestly like, I don't think about the other side much. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of things I have to think about on our side. I think that, you know, again to everyone is just people, like so much of the reason that we believe the things that we believe is what we were taught. And whether it's, we taught it, we were taught it through our parents and our family, whether we were taught it through our religion, whether we were taught it through in a school, uh, we were taught it in some type of institution. And so like there are challenges and there are conversations that like I as a black woman are just not going to put myself in because there are people who think like very differently and would feel comfortable and like being disrespectful or like uh, pushing what they think on me in ways that can be harmful. Uh, But outside of people being harmful to each other, there's some level of conversations that folks really need to have. And we need to figure out who the best messengers are for certain conversations. But I don't think that it's a short-term work. And I think that we have a tendency to want quick fixes, right? Like, you know, we're in the age of Amazon, where you can order something at 10 a.m. and actually have it delivered to your house by, like, 7, right? Sometimes an even quicker turnaround. Like, we have to think about, like, how we are... Uh, working with people and how we are changing the way that people are thinking as a long-term project. But we have hundreds of years of like this learning that has been invested in people. And that is how our institutions got to where they are. And there is a lot of work to do to bring even just a different narrative to people's minds. Like when I first started doing this work five years ago, if someone asked me, what am I visioning, right? Like what is the world that I'm actually trying to build? What is the world that I want to see? I didn't even have an answer to that question. And it's because, like we spend so much time trying to change what exists because it exists, and it's currently harming people, and so when I think about like those folks on the other side, like I joked earlier that I don't think about that much, but i I think that there are a lot of people that are thinking about like how it is that we do the work to really make sure that people understand different lens that they have never been exposed to, but then there's also people who are choosing. What they are choosing, and they do fully understand. There are so many people who fully understand what they're doing, right? And when we're doing advocacy and we're doing organizing in Pennsylvania, I always um, tell people, like, I, I'm not gonna have an action and not gonna do a whole bunch of work personally against someone that has no shame. Like, you know exactly what you're doing, you understand the historical realities, but you're benefiting from this. And so, me getting you to fight against something or push against something that you yourself are currently and your family is benefiting from is probably not something I'm going to realistically be able to do. But what we can do is influence the people that we can't influence and what we can do is have the conversations where we can have them and we can consistently work to make sure that we're changing culture and changing narrative and changing, you know, the way that the media is reporting things because so much of like what people believe is the media, right? Like I'm from Nigeria and when I go home, like even family members know things about America, right? And family members have assumptions about different people here because of the TV that is provided to them and the media is provided to them there. Right. And so there's so many global contexts of things that are going on. And so really, there's so much visioning that we're still doing, um, or at least I am doing and we're doing as Pennsylvania Voice and in Pennsylvania to really make sure that we understand and we have a system that we are working towards. But there's so much work that has to happen to repair the harm that has been like injected into our democracy that I'm focused on that. We're focused really on the people that we know are aligned with us. And, you know, trusting and working in coalition and in partnership with allies throughout the state that are working in those communities that are doing that other work and having those deep conversations and hoping and helping to inform and influence how they're doing that in the ways that we actually can.
1: What should I have asked you that I have failed to ask?
0: I guess, like, what does it mean to win? So much of. The work that we're doing in democracy, in collective liberation and, you know, issue organizing, so much of what we're doing is about like winning. But it's really nuanced what that definition of win actually is, because we have short term wins, we have long term wins. And then even within like both of those, we have additional nuances about What if you pass a legislation or like, what if you pass a bill or what if you get, you know, someone in office that aligns with your values, but then there's still some more like things that like happen along the way that are challenges. Like, do you count that as a win, do you not?
1: Every one battle in politics is not over. People keep coming back to refight the same battle. The thing that you thought, the progress you think you made will be undone. If you don't keep fighting for it, it'll be undone quickly. Yes. And you'll go backwards without the ongoing effort. And I mean, one of the things that you were saying early on, which I've now heard from scores of people is this notion of continued civic engagement rather than election related last minute civic engagement. And that, I mean, that seems like a good part of what you're up to, I hope. Through your state voice chapter and and so on, it's fascinating to talk to you. It's interesting to see you know someone at the helm of an organization like this who's passionate about change in the way that you clearly are. What else should we know about you?
0: I don't like to lose.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't like to lose. <laughs> I played sports when I was younger, and I remember something that my best friend said in a soccer game where I wasn't I wasn't the great at soccer. But I have heart, <laughs> and so <laughs> um, I was like, a, I can't even remember the terms anymore. I was like a backfielder, so like I was right in front of the people, right in front of the goal, and like defender, yeah, defender, yes. Um, and someone like was approaching me, and so like I tried to like stop her in her tracks, and she like clearly just got around me in a very embarrassing way. And so my friend thought it was so funny because most people would just be like, oh, you know, whatever. I was like, oh no, you thought that she got around me, and I like chased her down. I ended up not being successful, but I think that my best friend at the time was just like, it was just so interesting to me how you just never gave up. And I think that's something that holds true to me today. I think that when I believe something can happen, even sometimes when I believe it can't, I think that it's worth the fight. Um, And that is very much where I come to in this work. I think white supremacy is hundreds of years ahead of us in terms of like um, ideology and creating the world that it wants to see. I think we have a lot of work ahead of us. But I think it's possible and I don't think that we have a choice because I think every vic- small victory, every policy, everything that we're doing is repairing some harm for some people. And we can't just put our hands in the air and say, oh, we're not going to do this because it's too hard of a task. And so um, what I will say about me is just I, I don't give up. And so whether I am at the helm of Pennsylvania boys or 20 years from now, you know, two redistricting cycles from now, um, whether I am figuring out how to play out in this process in a different way. Um, I do not give up and I have every intention of doing everything that I can to make sure life is better for people who look like me in every capacity that I can.
1: Well, honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say?
0: I don't think so. Thank you so much for the time today. It was great to chit chatting with you. Um, And I hope that like you continue to follow the work and I hope that we can stay in touch. But also, you know, as you're having these conversations with other folks, I just anyone that is listening to this or anyone who um, is in Pennsylvania who is thinking about power building through the lens that we're thinking about or through something similar. Just encouraging folks to really get involved. We need as many people as possible to really be thinking about this work on a regular basis. And so thank you for the space to share a little bit about what we're doing in Pennsylvania. And we're here, and we're going to
1: continue doing the work and just want to encourage as many people as possible to throw down to. Thank you. That was Shalwa Ogunmeffin. She's at statevoices.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.